Sometimes there's nothing better than a glass of cold water, is there? Especially after a long day of work out in the yard and you come inside. Ah, water, it doesn't have any flavor or taste to it, but sometimes it just tastes the best, doesn't it? Today, you're, we're going to look at a story in the life of Jesus where he's going to sit down by a well of water and begin this conversation that's going to change a woman's life and as a result, change the entire community. But as we look at this story, there's this question that I want to develop. It's a question that I have seen the text asking over and over as I was preparing for the message. And matter of fact, this is a text and a passage of Scripture that I preached on just about a year and a half ago. And when I was preparing for that message, this question didn't come up, but for some reason it did this time. And this question, we may think, has an obvious answer, but the reality is not everyone agrees on the answer to the question. And the question is, is there more to life? than what we see? Is there more to life than what we see? But more than that question alone, I want want us also to deal with the so what of that question. Meaning, if there really is more to life than what we see, what difference does that make for how we live now? Over the course of the last three months, we have seen there's a lot more to Jesus than just what we can see. Jesus was no ordinary man. His conception and his birth were very unique, and although his upbringing as a child was probably pretty normal, his life and ministry got extremely interesting at his baptism. And when he began his ministry in the area of Judea, where he performed his first uh, miracle in Canaan of Galilee, turning water into wine, and also when he called his 12 disciples or when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness to abandon his call, but he fought temptation and remained sinless, Jesus was no ordinary man. He was definitely unique, and you're going to see that in our story today. Jesus had just left the area of Judea and was headed toward Galilee because of this growing opposition. And we're told this in the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, in chapter 4, and we're going to start this story in verse 4. It says this, Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Because of this journey that Jesus was taking, leaving Judea and headed to Galilee, and likely because he traveled through the night, he was exhausted and tired, and so he sits down. And he sits down by this well, and this well is going to be the setting of our story. And this well has historic and religious significance to it. It's the well of the ancestor Jacob, the father the uh, father of the Jewish people. But more than the significance of the well, I want to describe to you the physical attributes of this well. This well didn't just hold water like we often think of with a cistern. This actually was a deep well that would cut through solid rock and penetrated a spring of water which bubbled upward at the bottom of the well. This means that the water source from the well was not just from the rain, catching rain from above. It actually had a flowing source underground, something it could tap into. And in this sense, the well had living water, a never-ending supply. The well wouldn't run dry because of a drought. It had a life source flowing water in the ground that it tapped into. 
Commentators suggest that this well was about seven and a half feet in diameter, and the opening at, top, at the top was covered like a cistern. This covering had a round opening in it nearly two feet wide for lowering a vessel on a rope to draw water. And it was here at this well that Jesus was sitting down, tired, hungry, and thirsty from his long journey. And the story goes on to say this, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So as he's sitting down here by this well of water, a woman comes on her normal everyday journey to the well to draw her water. And even before Jesus says anything, it's important for you and I to know that there is a massive social and religious chasm that separates this woman from Jesus. First, she was a woman. And in the ancient world, and still in many Middle Eastern circles today, women were considered second-class citizens. It was custom that men did not speak to women in public. A man couldn't even speak to his own wife in public. But second, the huge factor that separated these two was the fact that she was a Samaritan and he was a Jew. It was a racial and a religious prejudice. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. They would avoid all forms of social contact with them. It would have put a Jewish man in a religious procedure crisis. But Jesus flings the bridge of human need across this vast chasm, and he breaks the taboo. He takes the initiative, and he starts a conversation with her. And only if the woman knew who Jesus was, perhaps he wouldn't be so lax. Perhaps she wouldn't be so lax in talking with him. But all she recognizes is, this is not right. He's breaking so many customs and laws and norms. But this is what Jesus does over and over throughout the Gospels. He breaks down social and racial barriers, and he elevates women. Everything you and I know about Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that he starts this conversation. He doesn't care about social norms. He has a keen and deep compassion for people, regardless of whether they be a man or woman and regardless of their ethnic or racial background. But then the dialogue and the conversation began to take an interesting turn. In verse 10, we're told this, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and this well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw the water. So early on in the conversation, Jesus takes this dialogue to a whole nother level. Jesus did the same thing in the story we talked about last week with Nicodemus. Jesus, when he speaks, often says more than just what, it means more than just what he says. He often speaks in spiritual terms. And from here on out, what I want you to notice in this conversation between Jesus and the woman is that Jesus is going to speak in spiritual terms, but the woman is only going to speak on what she sees and what she understands, the physical However, although she doesn't yet see it, Jesus wants her to understand that there is way more to life than just what she can see. For now, Jesus wants her to know the gift of God, and and he also wants her to know and understand that there's more to him than just what she can see. 
But for the woman, though, the only thing she knew about Jesus was that he was a Jewish man who should not be talking to her. Furthermore, when Jesus speaks of living water, he is speaking in a spiritual sense. He's talking about himself, how he can give eternal life to those who receive him. And also, he was talking about the Holy Spirit, who would be sent as a helper to give us the power over sin. And we know that this is what Jesus meant, because just a few chapters later in the book of John, in chapter 7, we're told this in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like what he was saying to the woman. And then we're told in verse 39 what this means. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. For the woman, though, it's evident she doesn't yet understand what Jesus is talking about. Because when she hears that phrase, living water, she's thinking about that well of water that they're standing beside. She understands living water as water that is running or springing up as opposed to a cistern or still water. For her, she only understood things on the surface level. She only understood things as she could see it, the physical. But Jesus shows us in this conversation with the woman, there is more to life. There exists a spiritual reality, and this spiritual reality actually is more important than the physical reality. It has more value than the physical world that we can see. And we know this because of what Jesus says to the woman. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Notice the roles are reversed here. Jesus was the one who originally asked for a drink. He was physically thirsty. And so he asked the woman for physical water. But when she questions him about why he would even talk to her in the first place, he tells her, if you understood the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water. And remember, this living water that Jesus is talking about is eternal life and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Both of them spiritual things. So Jesus claims that her need for spiritual living water is greater than his need for physical drinking water. And Jesus was human. He needed water just like you and I do to survive. He says, if you drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again. But if you drink the living water I give you, you'll never thirst. Now, I like to imagine when he said that second part about the living water, he pointed to himself. But I'm only imagining that and speculating. We're never told that. But what we do know is that when we drink physical drinking water, you know this, you're going to be thirsty again. But Jesus claims that when you drink the spiritual living water that he offers you, you will never thirst. Physical things can meet a need for a time, but spiritual things can meet a need for an eternity. And so when the woman hears that the living water that Jesus offers will quench her thirst forever, she says, then give me this water. But remember, she's still speaking in the physical, only in what she can see. She doesn't understand that Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. And after she asks for this living water, the conversation takes an interesting turn. We're told this in verse 16. Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you're with right now is not your husband. 
What you've said is quite true. I want you to imagine for a moment, this was you. What would your response be? You're talking to a complete stranger when all of a sudden, in the conversation, he starts bringing up everything you ever did, your past. The woman must have been shocked, like we all would be. How does he know so much about me? But what I find interesting here, though, is that in changing the subject from talking about spiritual living water, Jesus makes the conversation about her personal life. Perhaps this is because Jesus wants to show her that her need for living water is related to her need for changing her current personal and marital behavior. I'm wondering if this really wasn't a change in the conversation at all. I'm wondering if Jesus is working with this understanding that our personal life, specifically our ethics and how we choose to live, is closely related to a spiritual reality. See, what I think Jesus is doing here is he's trying to help the woman understand that in order to receive this living water that he's offering, she must first deal with the flagrant misuse of her sexuality. He is not trying to show her off as morally worse off than any other human being. Rather, he's wanting her to deal with her sin and help her see that he has the ability to salvage the most worst of sinners and make something much better of their lives. But here's the physical reality. We are just like the woman. We don't want to deal with our sin. We don't want other people to know what we've done, the kind of person we are, what we do in secret. We don't want to deal with it. It's uncomfortable because the reality is if our sin is dealt with, then our true selves are exposed and we're brought into the light for everyone else to see. And so she does what we would often do. She changes the subject. She says this in verse 19, Sir, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and truth. Now, the first thing that I want to point out about these few verses here is that this woman's understanding of who Jesus is has changed. To her, Jesus is no longer just a Jewish man. She now considers him a prophet. And prophets are people whom God has given special knowledge and truth to. So the fact that Jesus knew so much about her past and current living situation, it's not surprising that she would call him and consider him a prophet. But she changes the subject, probably not fast enough for her, and she changes it to a topic, a long-debated question. Where is the physical location that God should be worshipped at? That was her question. She wants to know who's right. Are are the Samaritans right, and should God be worshipped at Mount Gerizim, or are the Jews right, and should God be worshipped in Jerusalem? But yet again, for Jesus, he's not concerned with the physical, not even the physical location. See, even in a spiritual conversation, the woman still is only concerned about physical matters. She wants to know what place, the physical location of where you should be standing when you worship God. But Jesus understands worship not in physical terms, but in spiritual terms. Worship is not about a physical place. It's about the nature of our worship. Our worship should be in spirit and in truth. 
And I want to spend a moment and camp out in verse 24 because I think it's important to the larger point of the text. Verse 24 says, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. This verse right here, verse 24, is of tremendous significance. Spirit and truth are two of the characteristic fundamental elements in God's nature and in ours. And when Jesus speaks of true worshipers worshiping in spirit and truth, he is giving us an insight into who we are and into who God is. Jesus first affirms here that God is spirit. It's the essence of his nature. He's not confined to a space and, and time. He's not confined even to temples. He's omnipresent or everywhere present. Furthermore, he's not made up of material things. He's non-physical. He is spirit. Finally, when it says he's spirit, it means that he's not some abstract interpersonal force. Rather, he is a personal being. And when we worship him, we worship with the part of us that most closely connects with who he is. Because there's more to us than what meets the eye. We're not just physical beings. We have a created spirit. And this fact that we have a spirit and that we're more than just flesh and bones is confirmed throughout the scriptures. One such place is back in the book of Psalms. Psalm 63, it says this, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you. For the psalmist, his soul thirst and his flesh thirst. We are binary creatures. The part you can see, flesh and bones, and the part you can't see, your spirit. And I would submit to you this morning that your spirit, your soul, your heart, either way, the Bible uses those three words pretty interchangeably, but that spirit or soul is the true you. There is more to us. We have a spirit. Your physical body is merely a tent. It's fading. It's not eternal. There's more to you than just what you can see. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it in 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies, and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be spirits without bodies. Now, I know there's a lot going on in these few verses right here, but what the Apostle Paul is talking about is the future reality promised to anyone who believes in Jesus and receives the living water that he offers. But what I want you to catch, and the reason we turned here, is because these verses are teaching us that there is more to life than just what we can see. First, Paul says that in this future hope for the Christ follower, that they will, have, that they will be more than just spirits. They'll have a new resurrected body. He says that at the very end. We will not be just spirits without bodies. So he acknowledges that we have a spirit. It's a part of our nature. But also he recognizes that there's an eternal reality that we can't yet see, but that we long for. And if you're someone who hasn't yet believed in Jesus, received the living water, you don't know whether all this stuff is real or not. I want you to honestly ask yourself right now, do you believe there is more to life than just what you can see? Have you ever had a longing for something more? Have you ever tried different wells of water and kept coming up thirsty? Thinking, maybe if I try this thing, maybe if I do that thing, it will bring satisfaction. 
Maybe you keep going back to the same well of water over and over, and every time you find yourself thirsty and still wanting more. You've searched and nothing satisfied. Maybe you've poured yourself into your job, but your career didn't take you where you thought it would. Maybe you poured yourself into relationships, and you're just like the woman in our story. You've been in several relationships, and you're afraid to commit to the relationship you're in right now because you're afraid it'll lead to the same place that the rest of them have, dissatisfaction and disappointment. Maybe you've poured yourself into your parenting, hoping that your children would turn out a certain way, but they didn't. Maybe you've tried drugs, alcohol, sex as a place for satisfaction, thinking that those things would satisfy, but what you realize is that they only left you wanting more, and you can't wait to get your next fix. But your next fix requires a higher dosage. It requires more cans and bottles. It requires different women. You can't find satisfaction in anything else. Not fame, not fortune, nothing satisfies. Everything that you can see, the physical reality, only leaves you thirsty again. And if that is where you're at, feeling unsatisfied, I would submit to you that you are there because none of those things will ever satisfy you. They're just like that water from the well. It'll quench your thirst for a time, but you're going to be thirsty again. It's why I said earlier, physical things can meet a need for a time, but spiritual things can meet a need for an eternity. And I say this because there is more to you. You are not just a physical being. You are a spiritual being. And these so-called pleasures of the flesh, they won't ever meet your spiritual need. I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation, out of all the possibilities, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So the most probable explanation to the fact that nothing in this physical world can or ever will satisfy us is because there's more to life. We're not made to find satisfaction in this world. We're made to worship God and enjoy his presence forever. There exists a spiritual reality that I believe is more real than the physical reality that we can see. And there also exists a part of you that's more than just physical. It's your spirit. And this spiritual reality, both in our world and in you, makes all the difference. Our life is not about the physical. It's about our spirit being in relationship with the God who is spirit and that relationship being grounded in truth. And only when we begin to believe and pursue that will we find eternal satisfaction. See, when the woman hears Jesus' answer that worship is not about the physical place, it's about us connecting with God with our true selves, our spirit, and in truth, she begins to realize that Jesus is way more than just a man. He's even more than just a prophet. He's no ordinary man at all. And so she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, I the one speaking to you, I am he. This is a unique moment here. For the first time in all the Gospels, Jesus reveals himself as Messiah. And that word Messiah means anointed one or the one chosen by God to be the Savior of the world. And our story goes on to say, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, 
The woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi or teacher, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus' disciples return from buying food from the town, and they're astonished at the scene of Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman, but none of them dared say anything. But the time that they returned was right after Jesus had just revealed himself to the woman as Messiah. And after he does, the woman leaves. But when she leaves, we're told about this subtle detail in the text. And I love this because these kind of things don't have to be in there, but they are. And the subtle detail is this fact that as she's left to go back to her town, she left her water jar. The whole reason she had come out to the well in the first place was to draw water. But it's like she forgot all about that in pursuit of telling other people about Jesus. It's like for the first time, she's beginning to understand there's more to life than just what she can see. There are some things that are way more important, things that can satisfy forever. Jesus' poor disciples, though, they're just like the woman was. They're focused on the physical reality. They had just bought and brought back food for Jesus to eat, but Jesus says that he doesn't need their food, that he has food that they know nothing about. And just like the woman with the water, they want to know, well, where is he getting all this food from? But it's not physical food. It's spiritual food. And the spiritual food is to do the will of God and to finish the work that God had sent him to do. Now, I don't want you to miss this part here, this point that Jesus, he's human, and so he is physically tired, he's physically hungry, and he's physically thirsty. And we know this because it's the whole reason why he sat down by the well. It's the whole reason he asked the woman for a drink. It's the reason his disciples went to the town to buy food. However, at no point does Jesus actually get to rest. He's in a conversation with the woman the whole time. And we're never given any kind of indication that the woman actually ever drew some water for him to have something to drink. And then we know he didn't eat because he refused the food that his disciples had brought back to him. See, Jesus understands that satisfaction is found in being obedient to God. He found rest in doing God's will. His thirst was quenched in this conversation with the woman. His hunger was subsided because a whole town was coming out to hear about God's kingdom. See, Jesus, in his humanity, in his human nature, recognizes that we can get tired and we can even go to bed and sleep, but guess what? We're going to wake up and we're going to get tired again. We can be thirsty and have something to drink, but guess what? We're going to be thirsty again. We can be hungry and have a delicious meal and be full and satisfied, but guess what? We're going to grow hungry again. Nothing in this life satisfies But what can satisfy is found in the part of this world that we can't see, the spiritual reality. And that's why it makes all the difference. When we are obedient to God and live for him, that is what brings real satisfaction. And then I love how this whole story ends. It's perhaps my favorite part of the story. It says this in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. 
They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the savior of the world. The reason this is my favorite part of the story is because it's perhaps a perfect picture of our responsibility as Christ followers. In our story, this woman has just encountered Jesus, and after she encounters him, she goes back into her hometown to tell other people about him. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. So she tells them about Jesus. Then they come out of their town and make their way towards Jesus to hear him and to listen to him. And it says this, that many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And can I say, this is an appropriate response. If we're leading people to a life-changing relationship with Jesus, there should be a point in which people believe in Jesus because they believe what we're telling them. But can I just for a moment pause the message and only speak to the church, to people who have already given their life to Christ and consider themselves Christians? If I can, this is what I would say to you. If you're a Christ follower who feels stagnant in your faith, you feel like you're not growing or that you're not being fed or that things aren't going the way you want, you feel like you're not satisfied, could it be that you're still trying to find satisfaction in the physical world and not find satisfaction in being obedient to God? Perhaps the reason you're hungry and thirsty, the reason you're not finding any satisfaction is because you've sat in the church for years and you've waited to be fed. You are waiting for everyone else to cater to your preferences. But if you want to find satisfaction, you want to grow, why don't you try doing exactly what the woman did? Go out and tell other people about Jesus. Go to your town your neighborhood, your street, maybe even in your own home and tell them about Jesus and invite them to come and hear about who Jesus is and what he has done. I'll tell you, for me personally, there is no greater joy in my life when I get to sit down and have a conversation with someone who doesn't yet know Jesus and then to get to see that person give their life to Jesus and then submit to Christian baptism. If you're a Christ follower who feels stagnant in your faith, feels unsatisfied, Perhaps it's because you're not actively leading people to Christ. If you're a Christ follower who feels unsatisfied, perhaps it's because you're not actively leading people to Christ and you need to get on board with what God is doing. God is about reaching the lost. It's the whole reason he sent his son to die for people who need salvation, who are lost and far from him. It is not about you. And that's the reason you're not happy because you're trying to meet a spiritual need with physical things still. But when you begin to make room for people who aren't here yet, you begin telling other people about Jesus, you leave that water pot behind. You don't care about all that other stuff anymore. You don't care about your preferences, the physical things. It's like a sudden transformation takes place. All of a sudden, nothing else matters. And then nothing else could be more satisfying than being obedient to God and join in on what he's doing in our world. So for the Christ follower, you may need to be reminded this morning that there is more to this life and others need to know about it. But there's one last thing that I want everyone in this room to notice, and that's the transition that takes place at the very end of the story. After the woman leads the town people to Jesus and they get to encounter them for themselves, this is what it says. The very last verse we read says this. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This means that they no longer believed just because the woman told them. 
They have now heard and experienced Jesus for themselves, and they have come to their own conclusion that Jesus is Savior. And this is true. Every single person has to make a personal decision, not the decision of your parents, not the decision of a friend, a spouse, anyone else. You have to decide for yourself whether or not Jesus is who he says he is. We're told this in Hebrews 9, 27. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. That's telling us that every single person has a divine appointment. And every individual has to make their own decision. You can't lean on your decision of your parents or even in a confirmation that you're, of a choice that your parents made for you. Can't lean on a friend, a spouse, even in a preacher. Every single person has to decide for themselves whether or not Jesus is who he says he is and whether or not it's worth committing our entire lives to him. And so for anyone in this room and in my hearing right now, if you're like the woman at the beginning of the story and you have found yourself at the bottom looking for something, searching everywhere in all kinds of places for anything that will satisfy It's my absolute joy this morning to tell you about the same thing that Jesus offers the woman in our story, a living water that will quench your thirst. So if you're searching for something that satisfies, it can only be found when you receive the living water that Jesus offers. And remember, that living water is eternal life in the presence of God and the Holy Spirit as a helper to give us the power over our sin. And you can receive that free gift by coming and believing in and on Jesus turning from your sin, confessing with your mouth that he is Lord, and then being immersed in water. But do you remember that part of the story where Jesus is talking about this living water, and then I said he kind of changes the topic a little bit and begins bringing up the woman's personal life. And if you'll remember, I made this point that Jesus does that intentionally. He's not changing this conversation. He does that intentionally because he was wanting to deal with the woman's sin first. Because I said, dealing with our sin is directly related to receiving that spiritual water. And the truth is, Jesus wants to deal with your sin first, too. But here's the great news, the gospel message. Your sin has actually already been dealt with, and is dealt with on the cross of Jesus. And when Jesus died, his physical death The historical, physical death of Jesus had profound spiritual implications. His death was more than just a physical death. His death was for the purpose of atoning or forgiving our sins and making right our relationship with God. And I don't know if you see it or not and you realize it or not, but your biggest problem, my biggest problem, our world's biggest problem is not who we're married to. It's not how our job has turned out. It's not our living situation. It's not who sits in office in Washington. And whether you know it or not, your biggest problem, my biggest problem, our world's biggest problem cannot be solved with another self-help book or with a better job or with another fix or in another relationship. Your biggest problem, my biggest problem, our world's biggest problem is our sin. And each individual person has contributed to the evil and dissatisfaction of our world with the choices that we have made. Our biggest problem is that our sin has violated the holy and personal God who's made us in his image and wants to be in a relationship with you. And the only solution to our biggest dilemma is the cross of Jesus. There's no other solution to the problem of sin and evil in our world. And because of the death of Jesus, it means a complete forgiveness of your sins, but also Because Jesus left the grave empty three days later, it means life eternal, 
life everlasting, a never-ending satisfaction in the presence of God. So if that's where you're at today, then today what you need to do is take the step of believing in and on Jesus, putting your trust in Him, confessing or saying out loud with your mouth that He is Lord. He is who He says He is. Then repenting or turning away from your sin, begin pursuing Him, and finally, commit to being immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to receive the living water that Jesus offers, and it's a free gift offered to everyone. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. Your word confirms that you are spirit. It's your essence, your nature. And that means that you're not confined to a time or to a space or to a temple. That everywhere we are, you are there. It also means that you're not some force. You're a personal being. And it means we can have a personal relationship with you. But we also give you thanks Because even when we broke that relationship with you, we were unfaithful in our relationship. You made it right by sending your son Jesus as a man, the God-man, to come and live a perfect life in our place and then die a criminal's death. And we know because of your word that that physical death changed the course of history, and it can change and make right our relationship with you, but you don't force it on us. You ask us to come and receive it. We know we don't have to work for it or earn it, but you do ask that we humble ourselves before you, and so I pray, God, that you would begin working on the hearts of people in this room that need to receive that living water And God, for those of us who've already seen the living water, I pray that we would not be satisfied with where we're at, that we wouldn't find satisfaction in anything else but being obedient to you and pursuing people who don't know you yet so that they can know that you are real and that you want a relationship with us. We thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.